Laura. Spencer. Now that we have seen the final episode of Game of Thrones, can you imagine, now that we know what the real politics of Game of Thrones, what their view of the, the just life is, can you imagine if they got to make Confederate? I can, and for that reason, I'll never say that Game of Thrones ended 100% badly. The gift of understanding exactly how bad that would have been, that's simply something we never would have gotten. It's, 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 made, it, it's made it palpable with such searing clarity. I feel, at least on that level, grateful. Welcome, after three years and many negative comments later, to the very last episode of Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for Wired. I'm Laura Hudson, a former Wired Entertainment editor and the writer behind Wired's Game of Thrones recaps, the final one of which goes up tonight on Wired.com. And I'm Spencer Ackerman, a senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast and formerly a senior writer for Wired. Citadel Dropouts has been a conversation between two friends and Game of Thrones fanatics about how the characters and stories in that world connect with this world in terms of politics, the social order, diplomacy, feminism, and war. We are not a recap podcast. And now that we have reached the end of Game of Thrones, we're going to talk about the deeper themes of what we have just seen and uh, experienced now over the last eight years. Our goal is not to spoil, our goal is to enrich, but at this point, you, you know what you're in for. Everything is on the table at this point. This is what we're gonna do for however long we feel like it after eight years or more, in Laura's case, of this fandom. Yeah, I mean, we've we've finally gone beyond the wall of spoilers. It's an immaterial concern. It's almost a strange feeling, though, right? Like there's <laughs> nothing, nothing remains ahead, only behind. This is the most earnest I will ever be on this podcast, uh, or possibly ever. You know, the good thing about this show ending, and you know, in particular, uh, the you know politically backward way this show ended and revealed itself to have been, is that now all that remains, all that you'll ever rewatch, all that you'll ever, you know, consider to have endured are the things that made you love it in the first place. We've, you know, how many people love The Wire and are never gonna watch season five again, ever, right? For me, Battlestar Galactica ends after the trial of Gaius Baltar, because that's all I ever need. That's all I ever need experience and, you know, fine. I remember hearing somewhere, or this could be apocryphal, I don't know, I read a lot of stuff on the internet about Game of Thrones, but I recall in one article or another someone saying that one of the directions George R. R. Martin had given to the showrunners uh, in terms of uh, how to write the finale uh, was a single word, bittersweet. Mm. Bittersweet. And I think that ended up being accurate, although not perhaps in the way that they intended um, I, I think they were looking for more of an in-story bittersweetness, uh, you know, the, the conflicting goals and romances and loss and, and, and emotion that would derive from the culmination of these storylines. But my bittersweetness about this ending, I think, 
has more to do with what you mentioned and <laughs> the now uh, infamous to me analogy that you've used about this show, uh, which is it's a little bit like going to your ex's funeral. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been to th- we've been to the funeral. They're buried. And, and all that's kind of left now are the eulogies. Shall we? Let's do. I see where I was wrong about a whole lot of Game of Thrones and wrong on this podcast recently. On a scale of one to Tyrion, how wrong were you? I mean, I feel that's for others to judge, right? Like, it's not for me to grade my own homework. I'm sure I'm going to have this argument with my daughter in, in, in due course. But I think that in retrospect, I took too arrogantly that the show either shared my politics or was interested in or was knowledgeable about my politics. They may not understand, but they are definitely not interested in that. And I think that's that's what we should say about, you know, what this show through Daenerys Targaryen is saying about socialism. They are saying that socialism is fire and blood, and it is not. They are saying that this concept of breaking the wheel is, you know, I think revealed, as we had discussed two episodes ago, and revealed is hollow. They want to believe that somehow, the show that is, wants to somehow believe that Daenerys is Stalin or Mao, um, that she is, you know, conquest, bloodthirst, and justification for its own sake, clothed in some cynical language about freeing people. And I had thought while watching Daenerys Targaryen's arc that like she might go in that direction, but it would be earned that they would establish what the politics are of breaking the wheel in a non-slave society. And then she would make the choice to be, you know, mad queen or guillotine. You know, I'm going to quote the great podcaster, Mike Duncan, who does the History of Rome and Revolutions podcasts. And one of the things that uh, Mike used to shorthand how early 19th century Europe saw Napoleon uh, was to say that they saw him as Robespierre on horseback, which is to say that Napoleon was the French Revolution armed to conquer Europe. When in fact, Napoleon is one of the great, you know, cynical characters of modern political history, he suppresses the Jacobins. Uh, he rules from the middle class outward. Uh, he recreates aristocracy, just pliant aristocracy in pseudo republics where he goes. And nevertheless, because he is smart enough to package enough domestic justification through the symbols of the revolution and the republic that he himself obviated and hollowed out. Let's not forget this is the man who practiced the coup that ended the, the first republic. Nevertheless, the rest of Europe sees him as Robespierre on horseback, and this show sees Daenerys as Robespierre on dragonback. And they did that, they came to that after the, you know, demonstration at Winterfell that she was going to, you know, have another Lord of Storm's End instead of actually taking seriously the idea of smashing an aristocracy in Westeros that kills people, that oppresses people, that brought people to this situation of war and immiseration. Instead, no, she just gives that to a crony. So we've we've made her really Napoleon, yet nevertheless, this show treats her and the other claimants for uh, the mantle of the good society, Tyrion, for instance, 
treat her nevertheless as Robespierre. And the choice astounds me, but I am really, really, really glad that they made it. What I mean by that is I am glad, like we had said, for how we were going to judge the finale from the beginning of, of this season of Citadel Dropouts, it's that they were really going to go for it. They were going to make an argument about what a good society is, an argument about what's the best we can hope for, an argument about where ultimately the avatars for different arguments about politics sort out. And they're going to mean it. We had worried about that over the last couple episodes. I'm happy to say that I saw that they did really go for it and make such a shitty argument whose politics I think are, are, are ultimately harmful. But I'm glad they decided to let that out there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of complicated things that are dovetailing at the very end of Game of Thrones, some of which we've talked about before, and I'm going to bring them up again. I mean, Game of Thrones, the, the framework that, through which we're analyzing it is a framework that it asked for. It's, it's a Game of Thrones. It's a, it's a story about com competing political uh, philosophies. Uh, and, and to some degree, it's a story about the way we tell stories about them. Right. I mean, it's it's this has always been a conversation uh, about power and the way that we talk about power. Uh, you know, it comes back to the subversion argument, which I know a lot of people have used to justify uh, Danny's heel turn. Uh, I, I think it's 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 more complicated than that. It, I think at its outset with the execution of Ned Stark and the Red Wedding and a lot of the other things that, that things that happened, you know, the argument was. Uh, the pure noble ideals, uh, these un these unblemished heroes that we read about in books, are not politically feasible. You know, I, I I think that there's also a question in there of of what could conceivably replace that. You know, there's there's always the dark ending. The villain wins. Might makes right. Uh, but it seemed more likely that there was a conversation about uh, yeah again breaking the wheel. Uh, finding a middle path, figuring out what that looks like. Uh, and that idea was always very interesting. But, you know, I think we also run into the fact that we have the books feeding into the show. And at a certain point, we ran out of the books where I think that it's hard to say what George R. R. Martin intended. I think there was legitimately political complexity at the beginning. I don't know if this is where he was headed or not. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, you know, he he painted himself into a corner in Marine. That's why there was the mirror and he's not, because he could not figure out how to organically get Danny out of there. Uh, the show answered that question by saying, well, you just do it. And whatever happens, happens. And that's been sort of the ethos of the last two seasons, is we just move people wherever we need to move them to get them into place uh, for the final screenshot of this show. It uh, doesn't matter if it doesn't feel true to the characters, doesn't matter if we have to discard certain arcs entirely. It doesn't matter, honestly, what that says, what it means in terms of the politics, so long as we get there in the end. I feel like, however unintended, the show adopted a spectacle makes right philosophy. Yes. Uh, wh whatever, whatever spectacle is uh, most impressive that, you know, sends chills down your spine that looks the best. It doesn't matter if it's earned. It doesn't matter how we get there. The important thing is the spectacle. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of how the show has turned out uh, has, has been the unintended consequences of that. But even the fact that they're unintended, that mm -hmm. <laughs> there were a lot of moments where I felt like the show 
didn't even understand the themes that it was playing with, that they were just so many devices to wrap around spectacle. And that's, you know, that's how we get to this point where we say, how is this coherent? How does it end up saying these things? But I also think that as was the case when we talked about certain racial issues, certain gender issues, some of the sexual assault issues, I think it was sometimes the unintended meanings uh, that ended up seeping out that sometimes said the most, the things that were said that they didn't even know that they were saying. And, you know, I wonder too, with the conclusion that, that you've reached about what it has to say about power and about socialism, if it's not something that they thought too hard about, but, you know, was sort of, you know, their underlying understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't really have to, you know, read their minds, right? I think that just looking at what we see on screen and taking it seriously, we, you know, particularly uniquely with the finale episode, we we see exactly what it is they mean. Now, again, I can buy Danny is the Mad Queen. It's not an accident that all throughout these books, in pretty much every single Danny chapter, and certainly on every single episode of Game of Thrones, there's someone who's who's you know there to say, "Oh God, is she becoming her father?" You know, do you do you buy this fundamentally? We talked about this last week, but you know, now that we have you know a week away from the sack of King's Landing and you know the benefit of the finale, what what do you ultimately think, Laura, about you know what you call Danny's heel turn that you know she manifests as the Mad Queen? If a couple of years ago, a few years ago, let's say back when I thought, you know, Game of Thrones was at its strongest and I was the most excited about it, someone had, you know, pulled me into a corner at a party and said, you know what? I know the end of Game of Thrones. I'd be like, lay it on me. And they were like, okay, ends up, Danny turns evil, uh, totally destroys King's Landing, uh, John stabs her to death, she dies in his arms. And then Sansa becomes queen in the north and Bran actually becomes king. I'd say, whoa, <laughs> like that sounds pretty cool, actually. You know, I can obviously the seeds for Danny turning evil are there. Didn't see the Bran thing coming, but that's always kind of fun. And it actually makes sense in a way. He's probably going to be a way better king than Jon. Yeah. And obviously I wanted Sansa to be queen in the north. I, I, if, if I had to look at that snapshot, I'd say, yeah, that yeah. looks really cool. I can see how they would get there. But the problem is, <laughs> I mean, they they did get there, you know, by essentially twisting the mm -hmm. arm of, of the show and forcing it to go there. The problem is that it just didn't feel earned. I, I think yeah. one of the saddest things to me about the last several episodes was how little emotion I felt. There were these moments, you know, like dragons getting shot, you know, beloved characters dying and... These were things I cared about and invested in deeply, and it felt very like emotional CGI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it, it felt like something like almost uncanny valley emotion being simulated. And I, I thought to myself, I know I should feel something here, uh, but I don't. Uh, and and I think a lot of that is because they didn't they didn't get us here in a way that that felt sense that made sense. You know, again. That's that snapshot of Sansa on the throne, something I've wanted for a long time. That's amazing. That arc is amazing. Yeah. It, but it didn't feel earned, and it felt, 
it felt inorganic. And the other side of that is is what was lost along the way in the name of getting us there. You look at someone like Arya, whose entire arc was about family yeah. and about revenge. And they brought her up to the cusp of it and then said, <laughs> JK, little lady, revenge is bad. Just go to the other and side so, of the world. You know, I, I thought maybe, maybe this episode she'll come out and, you know, do something assassiny because the only person that she you know, the, the significant assassination was the Night's King, but he's not really a personal character as, so much as a concept. So that wasn't even like the personal revenge. Anyway, they put her on a boat and I don't know if they like threw a dart at a map, but like she's never expressed an interest in boats. She's never expressed an interest in <laughs> exploration, uh, but they just needed to her to like look cool and have us feel like she was on an adventure somewhere. So they just sent her west. And you know what? Again, if if we had had the seeds of that, that Arya desperately wanted to become an explorer, that'd be a cool ending. Uh, and it looked cool, but again, it, it it didn't make sense. The the actual arc that she had, that she'd earned, was just completely discarded because uh, they had other things they wanted to do. So I, I, I guess I guess those are, those are the two sides of that coin for me, where yes, that final snapshot looks mm-hmm. cool. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Uh, it's just so many things were warped to the degree that I could no longer connect to them or otherwise uh, completely discarded and wasted that it's it's hard for me to say that I bought it. It's interesting to me that I had a few moments of emotion in this episode, which was nice. I want to feel something. <laughs> I'm not a robot. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the, first, the first moment that I felt emotional, and, I, and again, I think these are similar and it's significant was when Danny died and it's not when John stabbed her. I didn't feel sad because of this, you know, tragic romance, uh, where this person has to kill the person he loves. And it's, you know, it's so incredibly horrible because honestly, I never felt particularly attached to their relationship because it's show hasn't made me feel particularly attached to it. It was just Mm -hmm. the thing that had to happen. It was the relationship that had to happen. The moment that felt sad to me was when Drogon flew up and he's, pushing her body with his nose like a dog, like a dog whose master has died. And I'm like, oh, Drogon. Uh, that's because the relationship between Danny and Drogon and, you know, the character, such as it is, of Drogon is actually well-developed. They spent years developing that. That's sincere. To be to be totally honest, you know, I felt I felt like Drogon felt when my mother died. I I, I held on like that. I got more out of, you know, I got more recognizable emotion out of the Drogon character uh, than I did in, you know, a whole lot of this episode. And it's CGI. <laughs> the CGI dragon was the, yeah. the emotional apex. Uh, the Well, and also yeah. the other moment for me was when I was sitting there being like, John, better reunite with Ghost. Better reunite with Ghost. And he did. And he yeah. pet him, you know, pleasing, you pleasing are, fans boy. everywhere, including myself. And again... You know, that's that's a relationship that's been meaningfully developed. Um, and the other one, the one that actually touched me was um, Brienne writing Jamie into the white book. It, it felt like the perfect end to that relationship. You know, it's it's finishing his story for him, uh, writing him in as, as the hero that she of all people knew him to be. It felt genuine. <laughs> I, I was actually, I was actually uh, relieved where I was like, I can have emotions about Game of Thrones again. Uh, and, and that's, yeah. what, that's what I wanted from, from all of this, from all of these deaths, from all of these uh, momentous changes. It's, it's, it, 
saddens me that so much of it felt so thin. There was that moment at the, I don't know what to call it, where everyone convenes, where uh, one of the characters says, this is you know, the most important moment in our lives. I suppose this is the most important moment of our lives. What we decide today will reverberate through the annals of history. I guess I, yeah, I just wish that more of it had felt that way. I don't know. How did you feel, Spencer? Well, I love the white book scene. I, I think that I made a mistake in judging Jamie going south too harshly because, like, the fact of the matter is Cersei is the woman he loves. Uh, it's not ever going to be a healthy relationship. It was not a healthy relationship. It was fated to never be such. Um, but he loves her. We can't control who we love very often. And that I should have, you know, given given that more respect and accordingly um, really, you know, came to find, you know, Brienne writing Jamie's history after, uh, you know, Joffrey in season four, I think, uh, had laughed at the idea that he would ever get another page. I thought that was lovely. I, I, I don't totally agree with you in terms of, oh, you should have taken this more seriously because what I feel like you're doing, what I feel like a lot of Game of Thrones fans have been struggling to do is do the work for the show. You know, the, the show should have made, they, if they'd wanted to make Jamie and Cersei these star-crossed lovers and have that end be tragic and have them be conflicted, there are so many ways they could have built up to that. They actually worked against it with having Cersei randomly put a hit out on Jamie that like, ended up not really mattering at all. Yeah. They, they <laughs> really could have brought matter. us there. We don't have to, we shouldn't have to do it on our own, Spencer. I wanted to go there too, but I'm, I, I feel like I'm, I, I'm not going to sit here and like gaslight myself into having <laughs> feelings the show didn't make me have. We've been together so long and, and, and this is, you know, I should feel this way. I should feel this way. Uh, you can't really should yourself into feeling anything. That's what I'm saying, Spencer. Honor your emotions. Honor your truth. If I'm allowed to have my truth, uh, can we talk about Tyrion um, and uh, some of the things that we've ultimately now definitively learned from Tyrion Lannister? The number one thing we've learned from Tyrion Lannister is that it's always possible for white men to fail up. I love how at the very end, <laughs> someone's like, he's completely fucked up constantly and made the worst decisions. And Bran's like, that's why he has to be in charge. He's made many terrible mistakes. He's going to spend the rest of his life fixing them. And I'm like, American political system, everybody. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, let, let the idiot white man, uh, you know, fuck himself and everyone else up enough. And eventually he will create bourgeois democracy. You know, this is the heart of my problem. Um, with with this episode and now uh, the politics on display uh, in Game of Thrones. Um, and it's that like an internet troll who doesn't quite understand what they're talking about, Tyrion says that there is no difference. There is merely a difference of degree between Daenerys Targaryen burning the slavers at Slaver's Bay, crucifying the masters of Marina Astorport, who I, I don't even know which one is which anymore, and, and burning King's Landing down. The entire moral force of all of his argument depends on this. Tyrion's argument is that there is no difference between setting alight the slavers, the slave masters of, of, of Astorport and Marine, um, and killing the civilians of King's Landing. 
And this is something that I just the history, particularly of of of, of American socialism, and quite a great you know amount of 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 non-American socialism, is constantly saying that there is a world of difference there. That in fact the problem with the Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire, uh, the 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 People's Republic of China, the, the you know North Korea, and on and on and on, is that they become the scourges of the people. Socialism is against that. Yeah, I I I had a, I had some concerns about the the construction of the way Tyrion said it. You know, when when she murdered the slavers of Astapor, no one but the slavers complained. She liberated the people of Slavers Bay. She liberated the people of King's Landing, and she'll go on liberating until the people of the world are free, and she rules them all. It's very first they came for such and such, and no one complained. Yes. As though, as though this is a, a, as though this is all on the same spectrum. A slippery slope. That this is a slippery slope, and it is not at all. That killing slave masters is on the same spectrum of violence as murdering thousands of innocents. You know, it's all just violence. Yes. Basically, it, it boils down to something very simplistic, which is all violence is bad, don't punch a Nazi. All violence is bad. Even, you know, kill, killing slave masters, nuclear bombing a city, it's, you know, all violence is bad, it's all the same. And, 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 and I think what it ignores in that is, is really critical, and I think you know what it is. Yes, what it ignores in this is the exact thing this show is supposed to be about, which is power. Where the power lies, who controls that power, and what they use it for. The difference that we're talking about between burning the slave masters and burning all of King's Landing is the slave masters oppress the people. King's Landing is the people. Daenerys Targaryen decided she was not going to see a distinction between the two, but most importantly at this point, Tyrion refuses to see the distinction between the two. That Tyrion concludes from where this show has denuded Daenerys Targaryen of her leftism, and this becomes the politics on display of this show, that people who come posturing in the guise of liberators, who say that in fact, we need not live in this awful way, that we can in fact, to coin a term, break the wheel, they, in fact, are simply a pretextual scourge for their own violent fantasies of conquest and the good life. Now, again, Daenerys is not an authentic leftist. We've gone over why this is, but the show seems to treat her as that. And this is ultimately what we have as the basis for what becomes Tyrion's politics. So one of the things that we've talked about a lot that I feel like we have to return to in this episode, especially because it was addressed so explicitly, uh, you know, her campaign slogan has essentially been break the wheel, break the wheel, Daenerys Targaryen 2020. Uh, and you and I have talked a lot about what is the wheel? And she actually addresses it pretty directly in this episode. What was the wheel all along? People all around the world are not liberated. I come to be their their spirit of vengeance, their, their righteous justice. Um, and again, without describing what it is that she in fact means by that in a non-slave context. And what we ultimately see on display is that she just means anyone who's opposed to her is the wheel. And Daenerys cannot be, by virtue of the politics this show wrote her into, considered a socialist, but nevertheless, she's playing this role um, for the other characters to talk about why 
this argument about why the wheel ought to be broken, which he, again, does not in fact make, is simply pretextual, that all it is is conquest, fire, and blood. And, and that's what we have to protect against. And from Tyrion's perspective, that becomes why we need to ultimately uh, put forward the most superficial of adjustments uh, to a system that has discredited itself so utterly that nevertheless are the precisely the kinds of things that I as Tyrion Lannister and one of the great and good of the realm benefit from, you know, by sheer coincidence. I thought it was actually kind of amazing that they did a scene where Samwell's like, because you and I have talked about what would a what yeah. would a truly radical change, a truly revolutionary change in the system look like, where Samwell explicitly suggests participatory democracy. Maybe the decision about what's best for everyone should be left to everyone. There's a pause, and then everyone breaks into hilarious laughter. <laughs> Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. <laughs> unrealistic, unrealistic. Yeah, exactly. And there, there will be, I think, people who argue well, what did you think? This is ultimately a medieval fantasy show and it's about subverting expectations. You know, I think the subverting expectations crutch is going to be leaned on, you know, a tremendous amount to hold a tremendous amount of freight uh, for this episode and certainly for discussions of the politics of this show. Look, everyone comes to Game of Thrones because we are willing to envision in our uh, escapism uh, a very bleak world. We learn here um, that this show is going to describe uh, the limits of the possible very, very, very narrowly, um, as with Tyrion, you know, giving everyone something that looks more like bourgeois liberalism, um, in which uh, the wealthy make the choices for everyone because, you know, everyone else uh, isn't really a human being. Though, though, th that's what the show is telling us is, is really, in fact, possible. Um, and, and it's not. A better world is possible. Yeah, I, I find it kind of ironic that people would use this whole subversion concept as a defense uh, for really how, how middling and weak the political changes that took place actually were. If that's really where you're going to go, if you want to do it on the basis of fantasy tropes, yes. monarchies are, are uh, almost always reified uh, in traditional fantasy stories. If you're going to subvert that, go in the other direction. It's, it's bizarre to me. And... and yeah, and if Daenerys Targaryen has to die so that better world can be born, what a story that is. If this is a show about subversion, about shock, this show has always been about shocking us, about telling us that the story mm -hmm. we thought this was, blow it out of the water. I don't mean tweak it a little bit this way and then sort of, you know, mostly tell the story you were telling again. I mean, cut off Ned Stark's head. You know, I mean, like, stab yeah. Rob Stark's pregnant wife in the gut and leave half the family dead on the floor. Like, it's weird to me that we can say this is what Game of Thrones it's a, is, is about. It's, it's about radically defying our expectations and, and telling stories that we're not used to hearing. And then, and then it's, it's, we get to the end of the story, and the last thing it has to say to us is about how they're going to remake the world. And instead of doing something truly radical, instead of having, being willing to consider uh, the imagination necessary to do that, the most radical thing that it comes up with is, hey, the monarchy's still, but slightly different. And then it ends with Tyrion 
you know, getting back into the seat of the hand of the king and everyone gathers around and it's pretty much the same thing, but a little bit different. It's just bizarre to me that that could be conceived of as a subversion. Like, I, I feel like it, it almost reminds me of the sort of political compromises that people make sometimes where they behave as though they, you know, truly want to change things, but they only feel like they can change things a little bit uh, within very, very particular constraints, yeah. you know, as opposed to something truly radical. You know, if Game of Thrones can't do something truly radical, when that's the entire point of the show, who can? I, I don't know. Just the lack of imagination really stunned me there, uh, as does the idea that this is somehow a subversion on a par with everything the show has done before. I I, I find myself, you know, with, with little patience for um, the, you know, subversion of expectations lens through which, you know, you, you, you very often hear we should view Game of Thrones. Because I think it's 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 much more, uh, you know, critically richer to look at what these these different choices and these different expectations uh, mean and represent. And that's why we've done this podcast for 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 three years and 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 not <laughs> one episode more. Um, and and so you know, I think to take seriously what what the show offered here, it's really telling us that. We, we can't have much in the way of a better world. And I think that's an idea worth taking seriously. You know, I don't think that Benioff and Weiss are under any obligation, you know, to make a show that caters to my particular politics. What I did expect of them uh, was to, to provide a show that once it made clear that it was, it was interested in these politics, um, you know, took them seriously uh, and 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 grappled with them. I don't really feel it accomplished that. I I fully concede uh, that you know I must sound um, in the uh, in the literary criticism sense uh, like I have provided a Stalinist Game of Thrones critique. I didn't mean to do that, but if I did that, you know, I'll plead guilty to it. Um, I don't mean to say that you know my take on this show. Uh, was definitive. It was just simply what mine what mine was and and why I I you know connected with this thing um, that I had connected so strongly with. Um, and you know I I I think that you know they uh, should be applauded. Uh, they made something that resonated really strongly. Um, they made something that I think demonstrated you, you know very clearly in the early seasons um, was was an excellent set of skills at, at editing George R. R. Martin. And it, it made me, you know, as I think a tribute to them upset that they don't really seem to, to believe that there's a qualitative difference between killing those who prop up an iniquitous and bloodthirsty order and killing everybody. So that, that, that makes me upset, but you know, I, I respect what they gave me. Um, I respect uh, their their shitty politics um, and, you know, really hats off to them for what they created. I will go back to, you know, seasons one through, you know, four and then I'll pick and choose kind of from the rest. And that's OK. And everyone can do that. Yeah, actually, uh, I feel like some of the some of the nicest feedback I've gotten recently has been from some people who said, you know, I I don't 
agree with everything you say, uh, but I always find it interesting to read. Uh, because, you know, like you, I have my own take on this. I have my own reasons that I came to it. I have uh, my own reasons that I'm disappointed. But I mean, that's the thing. You can look at Game of Thrones if you want to look at it through the subversion lens. I don't think that's always the most useful one to do, but you certainly can. Uh, you can look at it through a political lens. There are people coming to Game of Thrones for all different reasons. And I can honestly say that, you know, there's a little part of me that's a tiny bit jealous of people, you know, who could finish this episode and be like, fuck yeah. Game of Thrones is awesome. I feel great. I mm. would love to have that feeling. Yeah. So you know what? I'm a little jealous of anyone who feels that way. It's hard for me to get there. Um, but again, it doesn't take away from all of the things that I love about, I loved about the show, that I love about the book series. Uh, you know, I, I think we tend to focus really heavily on endings. We weight things heavily uh, towards endings. Uh, you know, we weight people's obituary, uh, you know, towards, you know, often where they were when they died, but there's a whole life that people have before that, you know, uh, endings aren't, endings aren't the entire story, uh, as sweet as it was when Brienne wrote in the white book, you know, the ending isn't, it isn't the whole yeah. story. Um, if I can attempt to one more, one more time, spin up a little bit of, <laughs> do it. maybe here's a reading of this was, uh, for better or for worse, and often I think inaccurately, uh, people have talked about Game of Thrones as, uh, you know, a quote-unquote realistic show. Uh, not in the sense of, oh, there are really dragons, uh, but in the sense that it it tended to reflect harsher realities than maybe other stories and other shows uh, were willing to show us. It was willing to uh, sacrifice uh, characters we cared about, to, to do ugly things, you know, because ugly things happen in the world. And I guess there's a little bit of me yeah. that's reflecting on this ending now and being like, you know, <laughs> there's something like in its own way, weirdly dark and tragic about the idea that the realistic ending of this show would be to say, yes. really, we can't change too much. Uh, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, lots of people die, but mostly... You know, the wheel of power turns on much as it has before and returns to itself. Yes, that mostly you will suffer. And and the most we can hope for is is tiny little movements uh, here and there that make things better for small amounts of people. You, you bring up a great point about, you know, reappraising Game of Thrones and especially doing so politically and thematically now that we know what the end point was. I, I think that really is something I, I did like that Tyrion line, you know, you know, ask me in 10 years if this worked. Was it right? It doesn't feel right. Ask me again in 10 years. Uh, I do note, you know, that one of the enduring legacies of this show uh, is about, you know, you had mentioned uh, the show's willingness to present a roar um, and more, you know, deeply real um, and frighteningly real portrayal of the bleakness of the world and the, and the, and the tragedies within it than a lot of other fiction. And I think one of the criteria to, you know, judge it by is the, you know, the, the difference in, you know, sometimes on this show, especially the thin line between being real and being gratuitous. I'll be interested to, you know, maybe, you know, years down the line, you know, kind of go back and, and think about that. But, you know, on, on some level, I kind of think like we did see the, the gratuity you know, kind of advancing in the and the realness retreating. Um, you know, people can probably argue about whether it did so, you know, in proportion 
to the amount of material uh, they no longer had from George R. R. Martin. Does this paint immediately, like some fiction would, the whole experience of eight years in a new light? Or do you think it's more a circumstance where, you know, we can just sort of snip off the show, you know, where we lose interest in everything before that was just great and untroubled in its legacy of being great? I mean, I think there's a danger in, in casting that back over the entirety of the show because I doubt very much that, you know, I doubt very much that there was an awareness that this is where it was going to end with this intention when they were making the early episodes. And, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I think there's a danger in taking the end of this story so seriously that we allow it to become the story of Game of Thrones, as weird as that sounds. Um, because I don't think where it started was where it ended up. And I don't think that, I guess I just don't find the ending authentic enough that I'm willing to attribute that level of intention to it such that it came from the beginning. Yeah. So let me, let me tell you, I'm like, this brings a story to mind about going to therapy. Hmm. Uh, I remember once I was going to therapy and I swear this is relevant. Uh, and I was talking about this unresolved thing in my life that I, I, you know, I just couldn't get closure on. I just couldn't get closure on. And my therapist was finally like, you know what? You're never going to know this thing that you want to know. You're never going to get closure on it in the way that you want to based on what, you know, any information that you get. She's like, just make up a story. She's like, just make up a story and let that be the way that it ends for you. If that's what you need, make up a story. Mm. And I almost, <laughs> that's sort of how I feel about the end of Game of Thrones, you know, where it's just like, I hit this point and it's like, well, we're never going to get the end. Let's just make up a story if that's what we need, if that's what gives us closure. So I'm willing to give it that. You know, I think this is going to give a lot of people closure. It's a sort of end. It's one that kind of makes sense. If that's what we need to close that loop, that's great. But Game of Thrones set out on a path, and I don't <laughs> think it knew where it was going. Mm -hmm. And I feel, again, like, you know, it's like someone threw a dart at a map and then was like, well, we're making the story go over here. And it's it's it doesn't entirely make sense to me to go back and be like, let's talk about you know, the first half of the journey in terms of, you know, why it was always headed there because that that wasn't where it was headed. That's not what it was about. We can, you know, read, you know, the tea leaves afterward and talk about it like it were, but that doesn't seem real to me. Let me ask you this. What did the way this show ended and the path it took after the books run out to get there tell you about George R. R. Martin's understanding of how to end A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, I mean, there's always going to be a certain amount of projection when you're having these conversations, and you can never truly know. I think there's a reason why it's taken him this long to get to the end, because I, you know, I, I, I think because, you know, all of the things that the show isn't now, like the nuance, the detail, the authenticity, the, the sprawling, uh, sense of character and arc like I I think it almost like grew too fast it was like this mm -hmm. weed that like got out of control and at a certain point it feels to me like it was spread so wide that there was no way to narrow it back into a, a clear path to an ending you know there are two books that were like a good hundreds of pages long that ran concurrently it's it's you know like the path is going it just keeps getting wider and wider as opposed to narrower and heading anywhere I think it was a really tough challenge that the showrunners were given, as much as we bag on them, trying to make all of those different points converge uh, in a way that makes sense to do it so quickly uh, and to get to an end point that 
would fulfill all of uh, the requirements of the story and the theme and the desires of fans. Uh, that was not an easy task. Um, they did it. Yes. You know what? And I have to I have to give them props for that alone. They did manage to end it. Um, in terms of what it means for Martin, the problem is I can't see him doing what the show did. You know, he's he's not going to be like, and yada, 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 Daenerys is at King's Landing. Like, he is incapable of pulling that shit. And, you know, that's why I don't know if we'll ever see the end of the books, because I don't see a clear path back from the story that he's written to the place that the show tried to take it without engaging in those sort of antics. Yeah. Again, maybe he's a magician. Maybe he can find a way. I hope he can. Uh, but you know, he, he wrote himself in, into a tough corner. I actually saw someone online and I'd, I'd have to fact check this myself. Uh, but someone was suggesting that I think it was after the third book, he had originally considered jumping forward five years. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But then decided to write it through and <laughs> off he went into the weeds. Uh, but I, you know, I wonder now what if he had jumped forward, I, you know, you could have avoided a lot of this, you know, it, jumped over a lot of it, fast forwarded to the place it needed to be, and then done some interesting things yeah. from there. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't make any judgments. That's, I mean, that's not true. But about this in particular, oh, I don't. Th- yes, we, we make, we make <laughs> lots of judgments. It is what it is. Uh, and, and again, he's given us so many great stories, so much great work. Uh, I, I don't regret reading it. I, I think it's fantastic. No, nor do I feel like he owes me another book. I would love it. I, I would I would certainly enjoy, you know, seeing how this ends. I you know, I'm 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 a, I'm a junkie, really. You know, I I was texting with you about this while it was happening. Um, when Fire and Blood came out, I bought that book. I sped through it. I enjoyed not a word of it. So be it. Uh, it doesn't again have to cater to me. If he ends up writing these books, even when I don't enjoy them, I I will be there for them. Uh, it may end up have, you know, having been an exercise in indulging obsession, but you know, nevertheless, that's what it'll be. Um, let's just, you know, I'll, I'll be honest about that. I, I find it amazing that, you know, just from, from, from the perspective of a pure story that whatever happens going forward, if he ends up, you know, delivering an end to this book, to this book series, it'll always now operate in the shadow of the adaptation of the thing he created. No matter what, we will have experienced the end of Game of Thrones before we've experienced the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. And if we ever get to the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, we'll have had that, you know, formative experience that we're now evaluating the source material against. The adaptation has now been, you know, the thing that that took off and, you know, became an economy. And it, 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 that's a really just fascinating place for it to occupy in pop culture. I mean, yeah. I actually wrote an article about this a few years back. It's it's obviously an unusual thing for an adaptation to uh, outstrip the original. It's happened once or twice uh, with uh, manga and anime, but certainly uh, nothing on this uh, large of a stage with such worldwide popularity and such momentous decisions being made. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, much is made of canon in fan communities, as we both know. Uh, and I think it would be really fascinating for the books to come out to be substantively different. Uh, because, you know, frankly, you're going to have fewer book readers than you had people who just watched that on HBO. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna have the hardcore fans who are going to have the quote unquote real ending. 
but most of the most of the world, most of popular culture will only experience the other. Right. So what's the real ending? I think it's indeterminate. I think it's what it's what you bring to it. Yeah, I mean, canon's a made up idea. You know, head. Exactly. You want to have a head canon about things? I don't really care. Uh, you know, there are people who say that whatever the author says is canon, but then you know, what if you only see the adaptation? I, obviously, the answer for me is going to be whatever George R. R. Martin writes, both because he's the original author, but also because all of his work uh, has the ring of authenticity. That's the that's what he does so well is is mm-hmm. make it feel real. Something again, the show has has done a poorer job of. So that would be my answer. Um, but I don't know. If you ask my brother who hasn't read the books and might never read the books, he's probably going to say it's the show. He's going to know that Jon Snow stabbed the dragon lady and then the dude in the wheelchair got the throne. He'll know that. I guarantee he'll know that. Yeah. And I think that they gave him a completed story. They gave him something that while from the perspective of theme um, and from characterization veered wildly. And from the perspective of, you know, pacing, um, left a lot of questions about, you know, at what point did they know where they were going? Um, nevertheless, there's there's a full story there that made arguments um, about this world. Bravo to them. I'm grateful to them, regardless of how wrong I believe they are um, and perhaps, you know, pernicious uh, what they have put on display will become. Um, but nevertheless, I got a tremendous amount uh, in my life out of Game of Thrones, not least of which is, you know, one of my best friends um, and my my most cherished friendship. We would not really, we work together at Wired, um, but I, I I think it's, it's fair to say we wouldn't really have probably gotten to know each other um, if not for, uh, for, for this fantasy series. Right? No, I, I think it definitely it definitely got us talking and brought us closer and frankly kept us closer. Indeed, yeah. So we're going to have to find uh, <laughs> other things to talk about and reasons to stay friends. <laughs> right. Have you seen Chernobyl? I have not seen Chernobyl, but I want to. Oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Our friendship will continue for those of you uh, following along. <laughs> uh, another thing I want to shout out is, you know, anyone involved in the the cinematography and the visual direction of the show, because even when the plot was incoherent, holy shit, did it look great. That that scene of Drogon's wings yeah. raising up behind Danny, holy crap. Uh, whoever's doing that, I wish he had more to work with, but that shit's killer. Good job. Strong stuff. And you know what? There still is mystery for me with Game of Thrones. You know, like I was... <laughs> I work through a lot of my arguments and my emotions on this podcast, so sometimes I end up in different places than I start out. But yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I was talking at the beginning about how, you know, everything's out there there. Everything's out there now and no mysteries remain, but maybe I'm making this up because this sounds good and makes me feel good. I don't care. <laughs> in the spirit of Game of Thrones, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and that's, you know, maybe these books are never going to end. And one of the things I've always loved about the series is, you know, that that sense of mystery, that sense of the unknown, the, the idea that there was, you know, more behind the story, more inside these prophecies, that it was, it was, it was heading somewhere that I didn't entirely understand. You know, and, and maybe it maybe it never finishes and I get to have that forever. 
Maybe I never get an ending. Yeah. And maybe that's the best ending of all. Uh, and that's totally me doing the work that I said I shouldn't do. But you know what? I need an ending too. Own it. Speaking of, if you are interested in uh, the sort of lens through which uh, I see this world, I will be applying it to a broad study of uh, the war on terrorism and tracing how uh, through a variety of different actors, the war on terrorism conspired tragically, uh, not as a matter of deliberate choice, but as a matter of an accumulation of a lot of unintended consequences to bring us to the perilous political moment we are in now. And that is going to be a book called Reign of Terror, and Viking will publish it in 2021. Is that something we can pre-order, Spencer? It w would have demonstrated um, more planning on my part if it were. But there will there will be surely some way that I will tweet about at Attack Ribbon. Oh, I feel I feel almost emotional. I feel a little bit emotional. Yes, I feel like there should be an emotion, <laughs> and I'm almost, you know, like climbing up to the point at which I can experience one. I've, you know, my 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 meter is you know, is is getting there, but is is not quite reaching the requisite threshold. Yeah, I mean, this has been this has been a major part of my life for the last eight years, certainly doing the podcast with you for the last several. Um, I regret nothing. And honestly, it's uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Uh, all mine. And thank you to everyone who listened to us over several cumbersome feed changes hosted by three different news organizations. <laughs> In as many seasons, who does that? This this was a, a podcast that Providence wanted to see. Um, and most importantly, uh, thank you to our incredible and very patient producer, Jeremy Dalmas, who's been with us from the start. And it was inconceivable that we would do this podcast, particularly for the finale of Game of Thrones, without. So thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, he is the reason... Uh, we sound coherent. Yeah, I, you guys definitely don't see the absolute nonsense he has to deal with behind the scenes, uh, but it is considerable, and we all we all owe him a great debt. So that was Citadel Dropouts. There's no point in subscribing to us online. <laughs> There's no point in leaving us a review. Really, I guess. It no longer matters. The podcast will be around forever, but never again. What is dead will never die. We've put together a special offer for uh, our listeners uh, of Citadel Dropouts. First-time subscribers can get one year of Wired for just $5, which is 50% off the standard price. You'll get unlimited access to Wired.com and the Get Wired app, plus a print magazine if you'd like. Just go to Wired.com slash flash sale. Citadel Dropouts was produced by Jeremy Dalmas. Thank you to everyone at Wired for putting this together and letting us take up your your your, your space. It's always been an honor to be uh, a Wired alum. I'm Spencer Ackerman. And I'm Laura Hudson. We will not be back next Monday. Thank you so much for listening. That's it. Bye, Goodbye. everybody. Bye.